Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 22 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday, the 30th of June. Leon, this week we're talking to Shay Vaughan. That's right. Shay Vaughan is a co-founder and CEO of WTVN, which is a women's broadcast television network in the US. And she's going to be talking to us about running the first OTT online TV network with original content created by women for women, giving any host access to its growing millions of online viewers from next door to across the globe. Yeah, internet TV, this is where it's all going, you know, specific channels for specific viewers. That's right. And after that, we've got a terrific interview with AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver, and he's going to be talking to us all about the South Australian government's decision to slap a tax on banks in its budget, and that's on top of the federal government's bank levy, and there's a whole lot of issues about that, not least of which would be the legality of it. Yeah, the banks are taking a beating, aren't they? That's right, that's right. So uh, that'll be very interesting to watch, and uh, yeah. Oh, well, so we'll see how it plays out, but um, let's listen to Shay Vaughan. Well, Shay, uh, tell us about the Women's Broadcast Television Network. Well, WBTVN, which is what we refer to it as, is it's really the first women's broadcast OTT internet station with original content that's actually created by women and for women. So tell us more about it. How does it work? Well, we actually have all the major players like Roku, Apple TV, Comcast, And so we have about 20 million viewers across the country. And how it works is that we look for experts that have either, you know, written books or they do speaking engagements, they do coaching. These are people that are well known within the media, but really don't have a platform of their own to be able to host their own television network. And so... They come to us to have their dreams come true, and we actually set them up with their own channel so that they can monetize all of the things that they do, promote themselves, promote their brands, and do that with a broader audience. Now, what what kinds of shows do you feature? We feature everything, cooking shows, talking shows, uh, health and wellness, just about anything that any other channel really, you know, offers. In fact, with WBTVN, you can actually go on your smart TV and you can put the channel on WBTVN.TV and our network will pull up. So you watch it on the internet, is that right? You can. You can actually watch it on anything, any of your devices. We also have an app that's called Women on TV. So if you were going on smart TV, you could put WBTVN.TV because that's the channel. But if you were using Roku, for instance, or you were doing um, your phone, you would download our free app, which is called Women on TV. And any of the other devices, you would just put that in and the channel would pull up so that you can watch and look at anything that you want. So how many viewers would you have outside of the United States? I don't know that we break it down because it's international, because all of our partners, like Roku, like Apple TV, like Comcast are international, but each one of them have millions of viewers. That's quite extraordinary. What qualities do you feel makes for a successful host or program on WBTVN? We definitely feel that you need the passion uh, to be able to want to message 
and really have uh, an opportunity to touch other hearts all over the world um, about what it is that you are really passionate about and how you can help to change their lives or to make them better. So the, the perfect person for us is, is maybe somebody that's already done a radio show or even a local television show or, you know, talks on, on, on stages across the country or even locally, but some experience so that they're not getting up and they're nervous and they're not sure about what they're going to do. This is a professional network. So we need professional people and hosts that can actually hold their space and own it. Which means you don't actually do any coaching or anything like that. These people come aboard and they're experienced already in that area. Well, that's true. But we do have people that will come to us that have a great message, have a great heart, but maybe don't have all the experience that they need. And we have several people that we can refer them to where they can actually get the help to get just a little bit better at uh, being in front of that camera. And then they can come back to us and and tape some things and we can take a look at it and uh, what a difference that makes. Okay, so how many channel spots do you actually offer? About 343 different channels. And thank you so much for asking that question because a lot of people don't understand what the difference really is between a network and a channel. And a network has a number of channels. And like I had mentioned just now, we have 343 spots on the Women's Broadcast Television Network. And we're actually rolling out a women wellness uh, network also. And um, that's really going to be for like doctors, anything that has to do with, with wellness. And every aspect of our life actually qualifies for that. It's not just, um, you know, it's just not the professionals out there like doctors or dentists or, you know, nutritionists. But it actually has to do with everything in our life on a daily basis that we have to deal with. So that's finances, our environment, uh, the community communities. Um, do we give back or we don't give back? It's everything in our life that really makes us healthy and, and having a balance with that. So the network is made up of several channels. And the people that come on actually own their channels and they own their content and they really get to do with with that whatever they want. So we have a lot of them, for instance, that will take their shows and just put them on their own website also or other platforms that they have. But the content comes to us first. It's fresh. It's new. Um, we download 24-7. Uh, around the clock and it's all new content that comes in all the time so it's pretty exciting i'd imagine a lot of it would also be promoted on social media as well wouldn't it absolutely um but more on social media is really um driving people to the channel so that they can watch it rather than putting it out there uh, and letting somebody, you know, see it without coming actually to the station. The network itself really provides, you know, a place for someone to really, you know, go to so that they can not only watch the shows that they may already know about or they've seen, but to actually be able to look around and go, wow, uh, Coffee with Claire, for instance, or Katie O'Reilly and her cooking show. I mean, they'll spot other things that kind of like tempt them. What is this all about? What is this show? Is there a message there? Is it something that I, I'm interested in? And they find a lot of things on here that they're uh, interested in. Now, in terms of uh, the, the money you make, I mean, do you, do you offer sponsorship opportunities, advertising spots? We do. 
In fact, that's the main way that we, it's not really through our host because it's very inexpensive, um, but really the sponsorships and um, the advertising that we do. And we have different packages that are on WBTVN.TV or they can actually go, that's our channel and there is a website that they can go to, which is women's, no apostrophe S, just women's broadcast TV dot com and it shows you all of the packages and you can look at all of those and decide if this is making you know sense for your dollars because there is a lot of viewers that come on and and advertising is is a big thing if it's done in the right way and just kind of like thinking out of the out of the box because it's not just flyers or things like that that they can put on but actual videos that we will show and we actually will take those and some of our more popular shows and they're all good but sometimes there's new shows that come on so they haven't had a chance to build uh, the audience and they will do that quickly. But we try to take those ads and those messages on those different channels that are going to get them the most exposure. That's that's extraordinary. Now, who are the main kind of advertisers and sponsors that you have? You know, just just about any walk of life, seriously, uh, whether they're selling, you know, shoes or different medical devices or things, fitness, a lot of fitness. You know, we have a product, for instance, that's, that's called Black MP. And it's probably one of the best drinks that you can drink. And it has probiotics in it and other benefits that just really help you with just being healthy. You know, food that we eat today, the apple that you eat today doesn't have all the nutrients in it that it had years ago. And so this just helps to replace all of that. So all kinds of sponsors in, in all walks of life. Finally, where's the best place to contact you and WBTVN? You can go right to wbtvn.tv and just go up to Founders and you'll find our information and you can get in touch with us. Shavon, it's been a real privilege talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Well, and it's been a privilege for me and just knowing, isn't this wonderful that we can do this uh, when we're so far apart? Here I am, you're in Australia and I'm here in LA and we got together and did this amazing, you know, uh, talk. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was great, Gary, wasn't it? It was indeed. I thought really interesting. You know, she obviously knows what she's doing, but she's tapping the new market of internet TV. And the fascinating part about internet TV is it can be accessed anywhere across the world, which is fantastic. It is indeed. And she'll pick up advertising from multinationals and uh, can probably make it uh, specific to a local district anyway. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, wait, now let's talk to Shane Oliver. Shane Oliver, it will be interesting to see if other states follow South Australia and implying a, a levy on the banks. What's your view about that? Well, it seems Australia has opened a bit of a Pandora's box here, starting with the federal budget bank levy. And of course, South Australia has now followed suit. And the risk is that other states do the same. I mean, there's several aspects to this. I guess as an economist, I, I kind of think that good tax policy involves setting the same tax rate for all industries. Otherwise, it uh, creates distortion in the system. Um, so there's a bit of a concern on that front that we might be heading back to a, a more complicated tax system like we used to have of old. Uh, I guess the other aspect is, is will the other states follow suit? I, I doubt very much that Victoria and New South Wales will at this point in time because they've got plenty of money with the stamp duty revenue flowing in from housing. But some of the other states may be more at risk uh, where budgets are under greater pressure. So, yeah, that's certainly something to keep an eye on. And, and I guess more broadly, it does send a bit of a, a signal to business, perhaps, that 
you know, businesses might start to fear that if they're making good profits or their industry is making good profits and uh, they're unpopular for whatever reason, um, that they might find a, an extra tax imposed on them. So that's a bit of a concern as well. But I guess at the great scheme of things, you could say the impact is trivial. I've read various analysis saying that it's only worth uh, 0.2% off uh, bank earnings, the South Australian tax, but I guess it's the thin edge of the wedge and if it spreads, then it could become more of a problem. Indeed. One of the states that could actually follow down that direction is Western Australia. I mean, the Western Australian Premier Mark McGowan said over the weekend that the bank tax would be examined because his government is looking to find every dollar it can in the lead up to its budget on September the 7th. Yeah, there's certainly uh, that, that's certainly a state that might uh, be looking at it, given the, uh, the tough conditions it's been facing of late. Um, it's perverse in a way in the old days when you the state wanted to attract um, activity to it. Uh, the way to do that would be to um, you know, have some sort of discount, you know, lower petrol prices, lower tax rates somewhere or other, or lower payroll tax or whatever. Um, this is going in the opposite direction, of course. I mean, I, I could see why they might be attracted to it. It's an area where they can raise money. If the federal government can do it, then they think, well, they can do it as well. The danger is that that could backfire at some point and lead to uh, a negative for activity in those states. It does seem like a bit of a concerning trend that we're starting to head back to a situation where there's different uh, rates applying across the country, um, which was something that was supposed to be cleared up by the GST. Well, that is actually a very, very good point because there's a question about the legality of the South Australia's move. I mean, with the GST, the state's actually uh, had to forego all their other taxes to get a share of the GST revenue. And uh, so how legal is this? Well, I, I guess that's a question for the lawyers to work out. I haven't really looked into that one. Obviously, they've taken some legal advice before announcing the change, but uh, by the same token, I'm sure people will, uh, will try and challenge that. Uh, so there are issues along those lines as to whether it will therefore remain in place or ultimately be implemented. But not being a lawyer, I don't really know the answer to that one. Right. And of course, the, the difference too, as uh, Christopher Pine was pointing out over the weekend, was that uh, the federal government's bank levy actually was guaranteed the banks. The South Australian levy does not guarantee the banks. Yeah, I guess the, the federal government has used various arguments at points in time to sort of justify it. One might be because of the cost of providing the, uh, the federal government guarantee. Um, whereas you're right, South Australia doesn't do that, doesn't provide a guarantee of the banks. So there is a slight difference here. You know, one could be seen as a fee for service. This is another source of debate and other ones. Uh, whereas if the state's doing it, then it's not. So, um, it's, it's not quite as rational in that sense. But nevertheless, it does seem we've opened a bit of Pandora's box here. The genie's out of the bottle and, uh, it, it raises questions as to other states following and also whether, um, similar levies and taxes might be imposed on other industries, which I think as an economist, as a as an investor in the Australian market is the thing, I guess, that's a bit more concerning. We've spent much of the last 30 years sort of moving in the direction of a more rational tax system to ensure that all activities are taxed at the same rate um, to avoid distortions in the, in the system. Um, whereas that these moves seem to be a, a bit of a backward step. Well, indeed, the uh, bank industry was saying at the time that this was uh, reminiscent of the Labor Party's uh, mining tax. In a way, it is. I guess the mining tax did have some 
merit to it. Uh, if you go back in the history of those things, there was, there was always an argument that there should be some sort of resource super profit tax in Australia because the resources in the ground ultimately belong to the people of Australia and if the organisation's digging them up and making super normal profits, then that's perhaps unfair for the whole of Australia that owns the resource. Um, so there was a strong economic basis for a, a resource super profit tax only problem is that the implementation was <laughs> was somewhat botched by political furor, um, which ended in the mining tax, which was a shadow of the resource super profit tax, and uh, the rest is history. Both have been dumped. So there are, I guess, comparisons, but I think the real issue, mind you, with the banks, I, I guess, well, they're in an oligopoly position, and therefore this might help redress that. That's been another reason for the uh, justification for the bank levy to try and reduce their oligopoly sort of power and make the environment more competitive. I guess um, that sort of begs the question as to whether they should have been allowed to get as big as they have been in the first place. Um, it's not necessarily an argument for a tax, but anyway, I guess we could go in circles from these sorts of things, but um, this is the reality we, we face at present. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. And Ian Narrow from the uh, Commonwealth Bank was uh, over the weekend saying uh, this actually creates a sovereign risk issue. What's your view about that? I guess it depends on uh, one's definition of sovereign risk. The similar argument was raised at the time of the resources tax uh, many years ago, back in 2010. So I, I guess sovereign risk is you know, a risk that a, a country might impose some sort of arbitrary levy or you know, seize assets at some point in time. I guess you could sort of put that in that category, but to some degree it's a, it's a relatively minor shift in the great scheme of things. It would only, I think, become a major issue if it continues to expand. But I can, I can understand why the banks are saying what they're saying. They're being hit with these levies. Other industries aren't. Well, the legislation's already gone through federally. I mean, do you see any prospect of South Australia actually getting its proposal up? I guess uh, yeah, it's already happened federally, and I guess uh, there's several steps that have to be resolved at the state level. It has to be passed into law. I assume it will be, but then there's the legal challenges, so it could be a while before this is fully resolved. And then, of course, we'll stand by waiting to see what the other states, particularly what WA does. I mean, I have a, a soft spot for South Australia. It's going through tough times. You know, I love Holdens. I've been driving Holdens for a long time, um, but I'm, I'm just not sure that this is the best thing they can do to get their state back in order. Well, the the, the bottom line is South Australia's got what five point nine percent, the highest unemployment rate in the country, and it's uh, and it's struggling with the demise of the manufacturing industry. So they're trying to find every dollar they can. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's right. Um, the problem is that uh, in trying to find every dollar you can, you can lead to a situation where industries, businesses go to other jurisdictions where they're not faced with those imposts. But it's a, a difficult bind. I can understand why they they want to balance their budget. That makes sense. And they have to look around for areas where they can do that. I guess there's a bit of a trade-off there. You know, wherever you raise that money, it's going to uh, have some negative economic impact. Trick is to try and minimise it. Indeed. Well, I mean, ultimately, they would like to see the GST imposed on all financial services. I mean, that that would be their big call. Yeah, th this is the issue in Australia that we still have unfinished business in relation to the GST. It doesn't apply to all economic activity. There are exemptions there, including financial services, but most notably, of course, education and fresh food. Um, I guess ultimately, if we want to rationalise the tax system, the, the, the best way to do that would be to rely less on income tax, whether it comes from individuals or companies, 
and rely more on GST and make the GST rate across uh, all activities. That's the economics of it. I guess the politics of it sort of gets bogged down in the fairness debate and that's where we've been for some time and I suspect that's where we'll remain stuck for some time. Indeed, because that's always the argument when uh, the proposal to change GST or raise a GST comes up. Uh, Shane Oliver, it's been delightful talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon, the uh, South Australians and the bankers? Well, this is going to be a fascinating issue. I mean, the federal government, I know, has been asking about the legality of it because basically South Australia, like all the other states, had foregone any taxation when they crossed over the GST to pick up the revenues from the GST. So there's a whole question about the legality of it. But then again, as Shane said, uh, he's sure the South Australian government took legal advice on the issue. I'm sure that's right. And I suppose that the basis of it is the fact that South Australia, like every other Australian state, is a sovereign state. That's right. So it'll be a very interesting space to watch. And of course, it will be very interesting to see, as Shane and I discussed, whether other states like Western Australia will follow suit. Yeah, I think it's an awesome precedent if uh, South Australia gets away with it. That's right. Indeed. Mm. Okay, now, Leon, the news and what's in your bill this week? Well, Gary, the big news for the week was the global Japanese auto parts maker Takata filing for bankruptcy. It was crippled by vast airbag recalls and the biggest recall in automotive history. The faulty airbags were linked with more than a dozen deaths and it led to the company filing Chapter 11 bankruptcy in Delaware the bankruptcy filing listed more than $10 billion in liability. Takata has also filed for bankruptcy in Japan. Now, this bankruptcy will rock the automotive industry because Takata has a 20% market share in airbags. Yeah. And the saga has seen 70 million of the company's airbags recalled in the US, in addition to millions more overseas, Gary. Yeah, I know. It's got to be the biggest crash since Air's rock hit the earth, but... The big question is, why weren't the faults found ages ago? They've obviously been there a long time. You know, where was the product testing? Well, that's right. That's why there have been multiple lawsuits against Takata and the car companies using the airbags, and the lawsuits allege personal injuries or deaths or economic losses. Now, what happened, Gary, was the airbag inflators exploded with too much force and sent shards of metal at drivers and passengers. Yeah. And the bankruptcy filing effectively finishes Takata, which was established in 1933. It's still controlled by its founding family. However, Shanghai-based Ningbo Joyson Electronic Corps has now stepped in and will take over Takata in a $1.59 billion takeover through its wholly owned US airbag maker, Key Safety Systems. Now, according to its filings, Takata's unsecured creditors include virtually all the major automakers led by Honda, Toyota and BMW. And that's a huge story, Gary. It is indeed, yeah. A, a little vignette of that is that the General Motors airbag was designed in Melbourne by uh, Holden's uh, head of advanced engineering, Laurie Spark, and uh, it seems to have had no problems with it at all. And I remember we talked to Laurie Spark some time ago. We did, about a year ago. We had a long interview with Laurie about his work. That's right, that's right. Now, 
The other big global story was Google suffering a major blow on Tuesday after European antitrust officials fined the search giant a record US $2.7 billion for unfairly favouring some of its own services over those of its rivals. And the penalty, which is 2.4 billion euros, highlights the aggressive stance that European officials have taken in regulating many of the world's largest technology companies, and they've gone significantly further than their American counterparts. Now, by levying the fine against Google, which is more than double the previous largest penalty in this type of antitrust case, Margaret Vestager, the EU's antitrust chief, also laid claim to being the Western world's most active regulator of digital services, which is an industry still dominated by Silicon Valley. Now, Google has 90 days to respond to the European Commission's demands or face penalties of up to 5% of the average daily global revenue of Alphabet, its parent company. Now, the issue is, though, that Google for sure will appeal against this, and analysts expect a protracted legal battle that will continue for years as both Google and its rivals fight to determine how search services are provided in Europe and elsewhere. This will have massive implications for Google right around the world. Oh, indeed it will. And, of course, it's a bonanza for uh, corporate lawyers and people like that. And there are actually two more antitrust decisions are due to come out quite soon that will add to the fever. That's right, that's right, which is why this is going to continue for some time. It's going to be a very murky story and it's something to watch. Indeed. Now, the other big story was businesses in Australia were told to report cyber attacks to government with the ransomware striking computers across the globe and they hit Australian businesses on Wednesday. There were reports that the Australian offices of global law firm DLI Piper had been impacted, as had the Hobart factory of chocolate maker Cadbury. The factory of Cadbury closed down production for the day, and the DLI Piper sent text to their staff telling them that their computers had been infected and not to log in, and they told them we won't be able to be there operating for the day, which is quite significant. Indeed it is, yeah. Um it's ransomware, so your system gets blocked and you, you're asked to pay a fee. Uh, and in fact, these, these criminals are making millions. And the interesting part about it is that most of their money seems to be coming from small businesses and individuals, you know, on the basis of if you can get 500 bucks from 10 million people, you're making quite a lot of money. That's right. And the small people seem to say, oh, well, 500 bucks, bugger it, I'll pay it. And it's an insidious thing. It just encourages uh, the criminals. It's very insidious. Now, these petty attacks seem to have used the same hacking tool used in the WannaCry ransomware attack that hit hundreds of thousands of computers in May. And they were only stopped when a British researcher developed a kill switch. Well, no kill switch was developed this time. And the cyber attack spread from Europe to the US and South America. It hit port operators in New York, Rotterdam, Argentina. It disrupted government systems in Kiev and disabled operations at companies including Rosneft, advertiser WPP and the Chernobyl nuclear facility. One thing, if you're worried about ransomware, make sure you back up your data. Then all you do is wipe your computer and load it back in again and uh, you're home free. Well, the other thing too is you need patches and you always have to keep your Microsoft system updated with all the latest patches. That is absolutely crucial for anyone who has a Microsoft system. 
that worries me a bit. I get about two a day of patches, so we'll see how we go. Well, it keeps you safe. Now, the other big story for Australia was a report from the Bank for International Settlements, and it's warned that high debt burdens in Australia and other countries could create another financial crisis. Now, while Australia and other countries dodged the worst of the global financial crisis, their growing debt levels, according to the BIS, could plunge them into another recession. Now, in its 87th annual report, the BIS which is a Swiss-based think tank, said that while debt ratios had fallen in countries hit hard by the global financial crisis like the US and the UK, debt levels and property prices continue to rise in nations, in their words, less affected by the GFC. They said in Australia, Canada, Sweden and Switzerland, household debt rose by 2 to 3 percentage points in 2016 to 86% to 128% of GDP. And the BIS said that excessive indebtedness has been one of the root causes of financial crisis and ensuing deep recessions. It said that Australia's household debt servicing burden is already more than 2 percentage points higher than the nation's long-run average. They said this will rise to 4 percentage points, even if interest rates don't increase or it rise only little. Indeed, the debt surfacing load rise to over 6 percentage points over average puts it among the highest in the world. And if rates rise more quickly, as they have in the past, and uh, that's quite an amazing issue. And it also warned that this was laying the foundations of the next recession. Yeah, it's very worrying. And you'll notice, of course, that Westpac has now moved to axe a lot of high-risk loans and to stop existing borrowers from moving into lower-cost loans, although I don't know how that'll work out. And perhaps more problematic than that is John Edwards, who's uh, formerly a, a director of the Reserve Bank of Australia, he's now at the Lowy Institute. He's just predicted there'll be eight interest rate hikes in the next uh, period, which mortgage rates up to 7%. So it's going to make it even harder for people to pay off their loans. That's right. And, uh, you know, he also said in that piece in for the Low Institute that the bigger the household debt, the more impact a quarter percentage point increase in the policy rate will have on household spending. Yeah. So that could actually have an impact on the economy. Absolutely, yeah. It's not a very nice situation. No. Now, uh, we had the census figures out this week, Gary, and... Australian home ownership has continued to fall with rising property prices. According to the latest census figures, the 2016 census figures show that only 31% of Australians now own their home outright and have paid off their mortgage, and that's down from 32.1% in the 2011 census. It's also well below the figure from the 1991 census, which found that 41.1% of Australians had paid off their homes. And at the same time, it said there's been a big shift to renting. Nearly 31% of Australians now pay rent. That's up from 20 29.6% just five years ago. Back in 1991, it was under 27%. And it's the first time that the number has climbed above 30% since 1954. Yep, and it's obviously going to continue. Um, it's clear that the Australian dream of home ownership is fading. And like most Europeans, we'll become a nation of renters. Well, that's right. That's right. And uh, this is this is a huge issue. And so it's going to be fascinating to watch how Australia is changing. And all that's all courtesy of the uh, 2016 census. Now, the really exciting piece of news was the announcement from Australia Post. It's broken new ground, appointing Christine Holgate as its new chief executive officer, succeeding Ahmed Fahul, who will step down next month following seven and a half years at the helm. 
Now, as the first woman to lead Australia Post in its 208-year history, Ms Holgate will have the massive task of transforming Australia's Post from a letters business into a logistics giant. And Australia Post Chairman John Stamhope said Ms Holgate, who'd been named CEO of the year in 2015, heading a remarkable turnaround at vitamin company Blackmores, was a standout candidate, he said, to lead the business through the next phase of Australia Post's transformation program and a skills building a business in Asia. Now, Gary, you also have to remember that Australia Post has a deal with Alibaba going. Yep, it certainly does. And that association goes back much longer than we think. I think I first met an Alibaba person down here in Melbourne, must have been 12 years ago, and they set up their office here just a year back. Right. Well, they work very closely with Australia Post, and that allows businesses to use Australia Post to do business with China and the rest of Asia. And a very big plus for the future of Australia Post, obviously. And also, uh, Kristen Holgate is coming in at a time when she has to G up the parcels business with Amazon about to set up operations in Australia. Yep, that's right. But I think the Alibaba Association is going to be a big help in that. I think so. Now... Final piece of news, Gary, is the auction of Rio Tinto's coal business is over. Rio Tinto has nominated Yang Coal Australia as the preferred buyer for its Australian coal and allied unit in Australia's Hunter Valley region after the Australian listed and China-backed company found an 11th-hour sweetener to top the rival bid from Glencore. And Yankol upped its offer to $2.69 billion from $2.45 billion. The revised offer added $240 million payable over five years in unconditional guaranteed royalty payments to a cash offer of $2.45 billion. And this came after Glencore on Friday had raised its offer to $2.675 billion in cash. And Glencore was, of course, looking to beat Yankol's earlier offer. So anyway, the auction is over. Yeah. That's very interesting there. Actually, I was just thinking, you know, about Christine Holgate coming in at Post. She's coming in at a much, much lower salary than Ahmed Pahur. You could probably say that had been stamped out. Well, yes. Uh, well, she she's on uh, something like $1.37 million with a view to getting uh, extra payments of $1.37 million if she performs. Now, Ahmed Pahur's payment was $5.6 million. <laughs> Yeah. That's right, and he could get bonuses up to seven, I think, couldn't he? That's right, that's right. So anyway, that has, as he said, been stamped out. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week we're talking to Alex Morkos, the owner of Aleron Security. He's going to be talking to us all about the implications for businesses of the recently passed mandatory privacy beach notification laws. Yeah, essential listening if you're in business. Absolutely. And that's it for us this week. And we look forward to bring you all the business, finance and economics news next week. And you can always tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we look forward to talk to you next week.